I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the technology industry and the future of U.S. national security, including our relationship with China and technology, we have with us a really distinguished guest today, Paul Rosenzweig, who is the founder at Red Branch Consulting, a homeland security consulting company. Paul is also a senior advisor to the Chertoff Group. Many of our listeners will know him as he formerly served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy in the Department of Homeland Security and, of course, as a federal prosecutor. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so very much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Let's open with this. Do you view misinformation, disinformation as a true national security threat? And what can we in the United States do about it? You know, we were talking just before we got on this podcast about how the truth, you know, isn't necessarily a determining factor anymore. Where are we, Paul? Well, I would break my answer to that down into a couple of pieces. I mean, certainly at a tactical level, misinformation is and has always been a tool of information operations and thus of national security concern. Typically, you know, in the past, that hasn't been misinformation or disinformation at scale, and it hasn't had the ability or the capacity to move national uh, debates. So, you know, when I think of misinformation, disinformation in the old style, I, I think of tactical things, you know, like creating a fake army that's going to invade at Calais and trying to convince Hitler that that's where we're going instead of going into Normandy as we did. There's a host of applications of that, you know, getting a leader like Putin to distrust a trusted advisor who's actually giving him good advice, you know, because we want to weaken his ability. That sort of thing is longstanding happens all the time and frankly isn't really very much different today than it has been in the past. The means and methods of doing it are different. You know, we'll we'll do it through a social media thing rather than through a letter, a leak or the uh, the Zimmerman telegram. But that's all you know part and parcel of things uh that were normal. What we're seeing today that has changed the game is a degradation not only of the means by which truth is discovered, but in fact, a degradation of our ability to actually discern the truth. You know, deep fake videos, for example, are becoming so good that in the next you know, two to five years, you could imagine, uh, seriously imagine Russia creating a fake video of, of President Zelensky ordering his troops to surrender that sort of thing. You can certainly imagine nation states like China or Russia using that sort of fake information to degrade our ability to discern the truth of what's happening in the United States and outside. And that is fundamentally a national security concern because it impacts our ability uh, to wage war, if you will, or to wage peace for that matter. But it's also even more fundamentally a deep and abiding cultural concern. You know, as we were kind of talking about before we started, 
in my view, the uh, shared expectation of truth is in the end foundation of uh, liberal Western democracies. Uh, you know, uh, Mark Twain said that the you know a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. But liberal democracy is really about the idea that the answer to lies is not to suppress false speech, but rather more better true speech that in the end overwhelms by convincing people of the truth of what they're seeing. It is, in essence, the very definition of our belief in the rationality of reasoned human behavior, which is the definition, if you will, of what it means to engage in a democratic discussion. And as we're losing that, both through the efforts of our international competitors and frankly, somewhat here in the United States itself, that's creating grave problems for our ability to function as a functioning democratic republic. Do you think other countries, namely China, Russia, you know, view the United States as being unable to have a truthful discussion internally about policy issues, forgetting about politics, just about policy issues? And how does that color our relationship with those you know, in the case of China, frenemy, adversary, whatever you call it, want to call it, and, and Russia, it, you know, our relationship is really fraught, to say the least. How does that color our relationships with them, though, on an international stage? Well, it colors them to a great degree because they have, I, I think, with regret, kind of correctly identified this as a Achilles heel of the liberal West, you know, and what we have thought of as our strength, that, you know, free discourse, the, you know, I dislike what you say, but I'll defend to the death your, your right to say it, is increasingly becoming a burden rather than a benefit to us. And it's also a problem because as a democracy that still adheres to values of truth, we really can't respond in kind. I mean, today's news is the revelation that, CENTCOM had used uh, fake persona and disinformation tactics to counter misinformation from China uh, about COVID and the origins of COVID. You know, we have systematically thought that COVID originated in Wuhan, probably from a, a market, but we can't get in to actually discern the actual truth. And China has been running a an information operation to try and counter that true narrative and to create the impression that COVID-19 was developed elsewhere, might be an American bioweapon. The Russians are doing the exact same thing by saying that there are U.S. biolabs in the Ukraine right now that are the source of monkeypox. And traditionally, we fight that with truthful information. We fight that by saying, no, you know, we've sponsored the WHO to go into Wuhan and find out the origins of COVID. And they say it's likely a, a market, but we can't tell for certain. Meanwhile... CENTCOM was trying to use the, the Chinese playbook against it and actually creating alternate personas that could create some doubt in Chinese minds. And now that it's been publicly disclosed by, by the press, all of Washington is in a, a flurry, a flutter of, of dismay because, I mean, and not wrongly so, because our rule is we don't lie, at least not much. 
Yeah, I mean, we're not perfect, but our basic rule is you'll get the truthful information from the U.S. government. And that makes us different from Russia and China. And there's a concern that that's not the case now. You know, as of this week, the story that you're referring to broke. The Pentagon is now doing a review of our own misinformation, disinformation campaigns using social media. Tell me what you think about that. Like, you know, I think most Americans would assume that the United States is doing plenty of clandestine stuff, but I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to stomach that we're using social media in the way, in that way. Well, you know, I, I genuinely think it's too early for me to figure out what I think about that. You know, it, it, in some ways, if we take disinformation from our side off the table as a tool, we are um, just exacerbating the strategic dissonance and, uh, and differential that we've been talking about for the, for the last 10 minutes. And yet we are ceding the use of a useful tool to the adversary. And I, I get completely, don't get me wrong, I get completely why people are unhappy with this because we don't want the U.S. government to see Facebook and Twitter as avenues for spreading lies, even if they do so with the legitimate and bona fide objective of spreading them only to the Chinese, only to the Russians, and only about things in which they've started it. You know, I mean, you, know, you can imagine a whole set of rules. You know, we couldn't even set up at DHS a disinformation board to combat disinformation with truthful information because that too much smacked of official speech. And that board was going to, DHS was going to run that to try and stop people from coming to the United States by telling the truth about how coyotes would abandon them at the border and, and stuff like that and combat election disinformation from Russia by, by speaking the truth about the lack of vulnerability in election machines. And that became a lightning rod, even though it was only going to speak truthful information, or at least it said it was. We never saw what it would do. So I get why people are upset. I think that what I, in the end, at least tentatively think about this, is that so long as disinformation is differentially benefiting one party in the United States over the other, combating disinformation on a global scale will be a political landmine domestically and thus not something we can do. Only if we get to a place where both parties are uh, equally victimized or equally benefited by adversarial disinformation will there then be room for a consensus on how the U.S. can effectively use that tool itself in an overseas context. It's a really fascinating situation we find ourselves in. And it, and it brings me to my next topic that I wanted to ask you about is you and others have really pointed out that the complexities and difficulties facing the technology industry vis-a-vis -vis U.S., China, and its implications for national security just grows more and more complicated by the day. 
What's your read on where we are in that space? We, the United States, are in a difficult and challenging position that happily in this instance, there seems to be a bipartisan concern about and thus a bipartisan sense that we need to address it. We're at the beginning of that, but we've recognized the problem and we're kind of in agreement across the aisles about it this time. So that's a good thing. So what's the problem set at its highest level, major American technology companies are both suppliers of critical capabilities to the U.S. government and particularly to the U.S. military, and at the same time, deeply invested in and dependent upon the Chinese market. At a strategic level, meta level, that creates a problem. And I say this without you know meaning to criticize the companies. They have been following the best business practices path that they can. And it's not their job to worry about our national security. It's their job to make money for their shareholders, to build good products, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, when Microsoft has to give its source code to China as a condition of working there, and that same source code is part of you know, federal networks, when Amazon builds you know, cloud centers in China and sells cloud services to the CIA, there is a risk of a, a divergence between the interests of the company and the interests of the United States. And this is happening in the services industry. It's also happening in the tech development area. We just saw, for example, Apple's announcement that it would continue to build the NAND processor chips in China, yeah, which makes them heavily dependent upon Chinese largesse, Chinese sufferance. Microsoft has four AI centers in China. The list of all of these connections you know, could go on. And again, this is not necessarily to condemn these companies for having interest in China. They, they should. But you know, if you have a view, as I do, that you know, there's an inevitable conflict, maybe not a war, but a, at least an economic conflict coming with China over this, that's a difficult position for them to be in. And it creates real problems for U.S. government interests. Is that economic conflict and that conflict in general, how does that inhibit our own innovation here in the United States? Well, it can inhibit it in all sorts of ways. You know, there are compromises that companies with interests in China need to make in order to effectively operate in China. They range from, you know, having uh, Chinese partners, mandatory Chinese partners, to data localization rules, to uh, source code sharing rules, to investment rules. Let's just take, you know, kind of one example out of many. Uh, China has data localization rules that require data to be maintained in China. Large data sets are essentially the training sets for artificial intelligence innovations. By prohibiting American innovators access to large data sets and requiring 
American innovators in China to make American data sets available there, the Chinese are differentially advantaging their ability to develop artificial intelligences to the potential detriment of America. Now, I have to say that, you know, all of this is really hard to discern, you know, in, in real world developmental cycles. Nobody admits, you know, that they're having problems here because their data sets are less robust. And it's hard to test out the proposition because nobody, you know, we don't run competitions between Chinese AI and, and American AI, at least not much of them. So it's hard to test out. But, you know, that's an example of how innovation would be diminished or, or kind of degraded, possibly, by rules imposed by China as a condition of uh, operation in China. Is our private sector more evolved in its thinking on tech policy than the government is at this point? I mean, I know that's always a conflict, but wh where do you see the two? I think the answer to that is kind of it depends, right? It depends what aspects of tech policy we're talking about. I think, for example, that the U.S. government's concepts of cyber offensive operations, I'm thinking of defend forward and persistent engagement as the new operating credo of U.S. cybercom, is really very far along and is well ahead of the private sector's conceptions of what it means to engage a, a, with somebody in cyberspace. They're still thinking about it episodically and Cybercom now thinks of it as a continuous uh, spectrum of activity that never stops day or night, 24-7, 365. On the other hand, I know of a certainty that private sector conceptions of the usability and usefulness of information sharing to defend themselves is much more robust, much more nimble, much more effective than uh, the efforts from the government. This despite many years of effort from the federal government, but the federal government, you know, still can't protect its own networks very well, much less be a, a, a really effective, you know, a seamless partner with the private sector. If you're talking about, you know, non-security things like antitrust or, you know, that's kind of outside my zone. I, I know that there's lots of divergences on, on those kinds of tech policies, but I'm less well qualified than others to think about those. Yeah, I guess what I'm really getting at is, you know, this online battlefield that we're experiencing increasingly, and it's increasingly the, the most important battlefield. Are we in the United States keeping up with the changing times in an adequate or better than adequate way? Well, this kind of almost circles back to the disinformation, misinformation question. And I think the answer is, is clearly mostly no. At the American University, where I'm a, uh, a senior fellow, I work on a program on uh, the efficaciousness of content moderation. And, you know, everybody knows that there's malcontent on the web. And we don't even have to talk about political content to get to, you know, child sexual abuse materials and, and other stuff that's really nasty. And, you know, we just cannot monitor 
and effectively moderate that content at scale. The networks are just too big. You know, the social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, you know, YouTube are doing a pretty good job of trying. And they're certainly throwing a lot of money at the deal. But, you know, uh, we can't even stop misinformation about things as simple as COVID-19 health information, much less, you know, compete with Twitter disinformation from the Chinese or the Russian government. You know, I, I literally today, I saw a tweet from Russia about U.S. bioweapons labs in the Ukraine, which was a complete fiction. But it came out of the Russian embassy with a little blue Twitter verified check mark. And I'm sure I didn't check when I looked it had already been retreated thousands of times by useful idiots, probably, you know, 50 to 70 percent of whom were, were non-existent, you know, bot personas. It's and that's today. So so if the question is, can we actually stop China from lying on social media about how it treats the Uyghurs? The answer is no. But can we better defend ourselves, I guess, against these misinformation, disinformation attacks? And are we better defending ourselves against cyber attacks from China or Russia or Iran or North Korea? Well, I mean, the two are very different. Um, on the disinformation one, I'm at a loss, as, as, as we've sort of discussed. I think that other people within the content moderation stack need to step up to the plate. People, you know, big service providers like Amazon Web Services, they can and have, you know, deplatformed people like Parler for the, their misinformation. And they can, if they want to, take steps to deplatform Chinese disinformation. They just haven't done so yet. They've left it to the social media content platforms. Twitter and Facebook without taking any role. It's harder at the infrastructure level, but it's possible. On the cybersecurity levels itself, there I think we've made much more progress. The critical infrastructure of the United States is by no means completely safe, but it is substantially less at risk than it was 10 years ago. Part of that is the effective uh, defensive steps that infrastructure sectors, you know, energy and, fi and finance, have taken on their own. Part of it is, you know, notwithstanding the fact that I was critical of, of the efforts earlier, we're doing better in the in the domestic space. You know, the creation of the cybersecurity infrastructure security agency, CISA, is, you know, that's less than five years old. That was a good step for centralizing, coordinating it. And then, you know, US Cyber Command is developing a doctrine of taking the fight at a low-grade sub-war level to the adversary. And that has caused, I think, the adversaries to step back a bit and be a little less aggressive, at least in the, the last three years. Just to come to a close here, on cybersecurity, what is the next step for the United States in cybersecurity? We, you, know, you, you alluded to the fact that our cyber command is strong and that our forward-leaning posture there is appropriate. Where do you see cybersecurity in Cyber Command? What, what's the trend there in terms of being more aggressive, less aggressive? Where do you see that happening? Well, I'm going to, if I may, broaden the question a bit. 
and say it this way. I think Cyber Command has, has developed an effective low-grade conflict strategy that will develop over time, but is on the right trajectory. I think where we're missing things right now is um, looking to our own dependencies on foreign nations for technology. And we have yet to develop a conception of what the economic afterlife of confrontation, particularly with China, will look like. And what I mean by the second of those is this. In response to Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, uh, the Western economies disengaged to a large degree from Russia. Uh, and some of that was driven by social concerns. Some of it was driven by mandatory sanctions. But either way, you know, there are, there are no McDonald's in Russia anymore. And, you know, the big tech companies have like Google and, and Amazon and Microsoft have stopped providing a lot of their services there. Disengaging from Russia was relatively easy because Russia, truth be told, was a relatively small and, and you know, in uh, not, I mean, they're, they're important as a resource source, oil, uh, you know, clearly very important oil and gas, but otherwise it's easy as a, as a retail and a consumer community, not so important. I don't know that we have a conception of what this, you know, growing confrontation with China may look like in the future. And so I don't know what it is uh, that we can expect uh, in, in the tech industry and in the cybersecurity industry in a world in which we have enhanced economic confrontations with China, much less, Lord help us, and I hope it doesn't happen, you know, physical confrontations, kinetic confrontations over, say, Taiwan. We are starting down that road with the CHIPS Act, you know, the Bipartisan Act just passed Congress, basically an effort to use financial incentives to get chip manufacturers to disconnect from the Chinese economy. If those incentives don't work, at a guess, I'm thinking that we might turn to mandatory sanctions regimes and disconnection regimes. And, you know, while the Russian market was easy and small, China is not. This will be a massive disruption that has economic consequences for America, has national security consequences for America, has major knock-on consequences for our allies in Europe and, and you know, Australia, New Zealand, India. Lord help us. Um, I can describe the coming confrontation and I can attest to the necessity for developing a cohesive response. I, I'm afraid that we need more brains than mine. I mean, if I were the, in the National Security Council for President Biden today, I would be running a you know, whole of government policy development process to see what the tools are, what the red lines would be, and you know, then including the 
big tech people to see you know, what it is that, that this will have effects on them. I don't see us doing that. Maybe we are and it's still top secret and I'm not in government. I hope so. And if you're, you're listening, Chris English, this is a job for you. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, does we'll Chris sure- listen to your podcast? I, I think he does. We're going to make sure he gets this episode for sure. Uh, okay. Let me ask you this. Are, have we missed the mark by not designating Facebook and Twitter and other massive social media platforms as critical infrastructure? Maybe. Yeah. I hate that question because if everything's critical infrastructure, nothing is critical infrastructure. And, you know, Every time we turn around to another sector that has a problem, we that's our, our response. And it's so much so that yeah, that we're now we've now got a subset of critical infrastructure that's you know basically really critical infrastructure that CISA has come up with. And you know, yes and no, it's critical in the sense that it is a critical avenue of communication. But if Twitter and Facebook went away tomorrow. And nobody could hear this podcast. The world wouldn't stop. Yeah, we'd go back to to writing white papers. Much less interesting. Fewer people read them, but you know, we do we do that. What will instead. we do without YouTube? Yeah, I don't know. What will we do without YouTube? <laughs> well, this is you've been incredibly generous with your time today, Paul. Thank you for all this insight. I think this is a conversation certainly that falls under to be continued. And I'd love to have you back to talk more about it. I will end by saying this. I think that how the United States approaches the national security questions surrounding the digital environment, and I mean that more broadly than cybersecurity of our network communications, is probably the single most difficult and under-evaluated question that we have facing us today. You know, fully 30% of the world's economy runs in this ICT space. Our dependencies are real and our response mechanisms have yet to be defined. So I'll come back anytime you want to talk about this because I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) Paul, thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 